Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The countdown begins, and with seven weeks to go, how will the general election affect your finances? Film investors have been burnt before, not least by HMRC, but are there less risky ways to invest in entertainment? And batteries, not your commoner garden ones, but lithium-ion batteries that power electric cars and smartphones. Are they the next big investment? We find out. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm Hugo Greenhouch, the FT's wealth correspondent, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. Well, wow. As the rumours started swirling early on Tuesday morning of a big announcement, I don't think anyone quite foresaw that Prime Minister Theresa May would announce a general election. And yet, here we are with seven weeks to go before June the 8th. But what does it mean for your finances? Questions are now being asked about whether the triple-lock pension will remain a Conservative manifesto pledge. Could the state pension age rise more quickly? And with the pound at a five-month high, what does this mean for the stock markets and your investments? Joining me now in the FT studio is Amy Williams, who covers investments for FT Money. Amy, well, what a week, but pound up, markets down. What's going on? Let's start with the pound. Why is it climbing and what does this mean? Well, it's had quite a climb. It's a five-month high at the moment. And um, the fund managers that I've spoken to this morning are actually scratching their heads a little bit because what we normally see when elections are called is a drop in sterling. So currency markets don't like uncertainty. And obviously, a general election means uncertainty because you don't know who's going to be in government at the end. But the interpretation on this seems to be that the currency markets are thinking that Theresa May will win the election because that seems to be what all of the pollsters are telling us, although they have been wrong before. And that if she does win the election, she will be able to essentially do what she wants. When it comes to Brexit, those pesky parliamentarians in her party will not be able to stop her and make things difficult for her and she'll be able to do what do what she needs to do to get Brexit through cleanly. So usually we talk about uncertainty being the only certainty, but the certainty is actually certainty this time around. We know that she's going to win. Well, we think we know so far. They think they think she they think they know she's going to win. And as Eric Lonergan, who's a fund manager at M&G Investments, said to me uh, this morning, it's very grown up of the currency markets to be thinking so far in advance. <laughs> but there we have it. That's what they're doing today. Okay. Well, that's that's the currency. That's the pound. Uh, now the markets though fell by two. 2.3% on Tuesday, the biggest one-day fall since a referendum. 
Why are they falling if the pound is climbing? Well, they're falling because the pound is climbing. So um, I'm sure that FT Money readers will remember Brexit, uh, which we had uh, in in June. Um, Then we were talking about the tale of two footsies. So we had the FTSE 100, which has around 70% of its earnings in overseas currencies like the dollar or the euro. And then the mid cap index, the FTSE 250, which is made up of much more domestically focused companies who tend to make their earnings in sterling. So the currency difference there is important. In Brexit, investors piled into the FTSE 100 because they wanted to invest in companies with overseas earnings and they didn't like the FTSE 250. Now, immediately yesterday, both the FTSE 250 and the FTSE 100 dropped because I suppose everyone was shocked. But this morning, the FTSE 100 with overseas earnings has continued to drop, while the FTSE 250 with earnings in sterling has started to bounce back. So that's related to the strength in sterling that we've seen already over the last two days. Investors want exposure to sterling and they're investing in the FTSE 250 this morning. Now we always and always many fund managers will always say invest for the long term, ignore short term blips and certainly a lot of people were, were burned after the referendum sort of moving portfolios around but well, what should investors do? Should they just stay put and, and, and ride it out? I think generally people in the know tell retail investors in particular to stay put Um, and Justin Urquhart-Stewart who's the chief executive of Seven Investment Management had quite quite a a funny line in this this morning and he was just saying well you should ignore everyone's predictions because if we've learned anything from 2016 we've learned that people get things wrong all of the time. We didn't expect the UK to vote to leave the European Union and we didn't expect Donald Trump to be elected president of the US so he's kind of advising everyone to Ignore what everyone else is doing and, in fact, actually consider that the unthinkable might happen and Tim Farron might be elected Prime Minister of the UK, for example. We just don't know. We just don't know. So the, the, this is the, the advice from the experts is we just don't know. I mean, that's that's a terrifying state of affairs. So I guess, again, if you're an investor, just stay put, basically. Yeah, I mean, you well... You can be hurt by staying put, but don't do anything silly and don't do anything rash. That's what the the, the message seems to be from uh, the people in the know this morning anyway. Amy, well, thank you very much for that. We'll see how it all pans out over the next seven weeks. And you can read more about the impact of the general election on your finances online now at ft.com forward slash money. Next up, we've heard much about investors being burned in film investment schemes. But are there less risky ways to invest in entertainment? For you budding producers out there still with fond memories of stepping the student boards, perhaps investing in the theatre might be for you. I'm joined now by Joseph Smith, a producer at Elton John's theatre company, Rocket Stage, and chief executive of Stage One, a charity that trains producers. So, Joseph, thanks for joining us, but why invest in theatre? What's the appeal? Well, I think the appeal for most investors, and really you need to look at the psychology of why uh, people are attracted to it, In my experience of 25 years being in the commercial theatre, an investor is not going to be attracted to theatre unless they have a love and a passion for watching theatre in the first place. So you really have to um, ascertain that first. So once you've got that bug, let's call it, or that or that desire, then the appeal really is to find out more about um, the process of putting on theatre. 
to understand it from a financial point of view, an artistic point of view, to understand how ticket sales correlate with the performance of a project financially, and also how reviews and marketing information also correlate to a successful or a not a successful production. So I think the investor gets an insight into the dynamics and the workings of how a production is put on both artistically and financially, which they find fascinating. And I also think what comes with an investment in theatre as well is what I call a kind of a social dividend, let's say. Not, not not a literal dividend, but an invite to the opening night, an access point that money can't buy, getting to meet the actors in the show, getting to attend the party afterwards and getting to also as well, which is a really important thing that investors do, have access to certain tickets so they can entertain people as well, well be they clients or individual friends. Because I was going to ask in terms of what sort of level of involvement can the investors space. So they, 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 they get quite close to the production, basically. They get to meet the actors, they get to go to the parties, they get to, well, they get to see the show from the premiere basically so quite a close involvement uh, as an investor yeah no absolutely and each producer will have their own uh, set of dynamics in terms of what the level of access it provides or you provide as a producer I would say that there is a correlation between larger sums of money being invested in shows and the amount of access and the regularity of access one can have usually what I call my um I don't know how best to phrase this, but my foot soldier investors, the ones who are putting in smaller amounts of money on a more regular basis, usually they will receive weekly updates on a marketing and a financial level and an artistic level. They'll receive uh, box office summary information and they'll receive regular information about the financial performance of the show, as well as what I call the more social sides of things. So invites to the show, they might come and see a dress rehearsal, they might, or they obviously will come to the opening night. So they have an access point that's a mix on both sides between the social and the financial, really. So, so how does it work? I mean, I'm an investor, I want to kind of put some money in, into a show. Well, what, what's the split, for example, between producers and investors? Okay, so the way it works is you will make your investment Investment. You may make an investment of £5,000, £10,000. You may make an investment for more money than that. And what usually happens is you, your investment will form part of the capitalisation of the show, so the, the amount of money it takes to put on the show in the first place. Um, that takes it takes us through to the opening night of the show, and then what kicks in is the expense, which is keeping that show running. So obviously during the running phase of the show, you have to make as much money at the box office as possible to cover not only the running costs of the show, but to also start to pay back the money you spend on putting the show on in the first place. Um, when you reach that magic point of having paid back the capitalization, we call that in producing recoupment, and that's the magic word, you've recouped your capital. Then the show goes into profit. Um, that profit is invariably or normally split 60% to the investor and 40% to the producer. So at the end of the project's life, let's say it's a 12-week run of a play in the West End, if there's um, £100,000 of profit, effectively £60,000 of that will be spread amongst the investors and 40000 will go to the producer. And that split is a very traditional one. If you invest more money in a show, sometimes that split is negotiable and the investor will get more of an upside on the profit. Sometimes it will go to 70%, sometimes maybe a bit higher and then maybe added benefits of getting their name above the title on the production or indeed some of the weekly income levels of um, uh, on the production. And not we'll come to the actual profits in a second, but there's also a tax credit available as well. How does that how does that work? Well, the production tax credit, without going into masses, masses of detail on it, was an incentive that our industry negotiated with the government. And I guess at the core of it is the sense that we are putting on shows that employ lots of people outside of the actual theatre itself to build the sets or run the show or provide properties or costumes for the show so there's a whole economy that goes with putting on a show so what 
actually happens is all the pre-production costs of the show minus um, the main minus you have to take out of that the marketing cost of the show but the majority of the pre-production cost of the show um, you can claim when you file your corporation tax return for the production a tax credit which will give you 80% of 20% of those pre-production costs back as a as cash effectively once you filed your tax return for the company and that money all producers or certainly all the ones I work with including myself treat that as income for the production so what whichever point you're at in the production you know it will be treated as money that, that helps to recoup the show or it will be treated as profit if the show is already recouped its so investment that's the tax credit level let's be blunt now but, but how much money could you make uh, from investing in theater i mean what, what sort of scale are we talking about okay well i'll give you two examples so let's take a short run play in the west end of about 12 weeks it may be capitalized at somewhere around half a million pounds the weekly running cost of the show may be somewhere between 70 and eighty thousand pounds let's say um an investor putting in five thousand pounds into that show if that project is deemed successful and obviously there's a big variation about what that word means but a couple of projects that I've worked on private lives that was in the West End a few years ago I've just done a a 10-week tour of Gaslight that's been around the country and someone putting in £5,000 into that show will have earned their money back which we call recoupment so they'll get their £5,000 back and within a very short space of time which is also quite attractive to investors if the project is successful Gaslight started touring in January finished its tour at the end of March and we paid everyone back during the course of the run their investment and then four weeks after the end of the run we paid back someone who'd put in about five thousand pounds got about another fourteen hundred pounds on top of that not bad in that case Very yes good. on a, sh- on a yeah. short run of the show another example which I think is going to be touched in the interview is Billy Elliot Uh, The musical, which is a much longer running show, 10 years it ran in the West End, and an investor putting £5,000 into that over the course of that 10 years will not only have earned their money back, but probably trebled their money over that period of time on quite a regular basis in terms of small amounts of profit over a longer period of time. It's almost kind of like an interest payment over that 10 years on uh, on the success of the show. Well, that's kind of the potential, but let's let's perhaps finish on on the risks. I mean, the risks are are enormous, aren't they? You're putting on a new show, even though it's an established name, or yes. with a, you know, great actors attached. Mm. But, but what are the real risks for an investor? Well, I think the real risks for an investor, and we say this on the front of any document that we um, present to them, which talks about the kind of artistic side of the show, the assets of the show, be it the actors or the director or the reviews the show may have had previously, and also the financial dynamic of the show we present to the investor, we have to say, this is high risk. We have to say, you know, we can only do our best to create a fantastic show. We believe we will create a fantastic show, but it's ultimately the critics in the newspapers and the audiences who are coming to see the show who will dictate whether that show is going to be successful or not. We can only do the best job we can do. And then the opinion on the show and and invariably the success of the show financially is quite subjective. It's not scientific in any way, shape or form. Not at all, no. Um, So you can have shows that have had brilliant reviews but just die at the box office because the audience aren't liking them. Conversely, you can have shows that got massacred in the reviews. Let's look at We Will Rock You, got awful reviews, but then ran for the best part of 50 years in the West End and was a huge crowd pleaser and the audiences loved it so you know there's a massive variation but we have to say to people this is high risk I always say you shouldn't invest in theatre unless it's money you can afford to lose and that could be all of that money so it's very much seen as a kind of high-end part of your investment portfolio and it's really about 
you know, money that could offer a very quick and lucrative return, but at the same time, you could lose out. And a lot of my investors tend to, I mean, I, I use this word liberally, spread bet. So they may put £5,000 into this show and this show and this show. Two of them may do really well. One may be a write-off. And maybe during the course of the process, they come they come out a little bit up as opposed to a lot up because they've obviously had to offset the unsuccessful one with the successful ones. High risk, high return. So again, Joseph, thank you very much. But stick to the passion, basically. It's the passion of the theatre has yeah. got to the primary driver. Yes, basically. and that's my experience because ultimately I can sit there and, and, and argue... Uh, a robust financial model on a show unless a person has a passion for theatre, goes to the theatre regularly or a passion for the arts actually it's like talking to a brick wall because people who don't will view it in the cold light of day as a kind of scientific investment opportunity and as hard as you try you can't pitch it in that context, you have to pitch it a bit in terms of the glamour in terms of the risk, in terms of the access, in terms of the social benefits You, it's the whole package you have to get your investor excited about. Joe thank you very much for joining us. It's a fascinating area to invest in. And thank you very much for joining us today. And you can read more from Vanessa Holder's article on investing in theatre and film online now at ft.com forward slash money. We are always in search of the next big investment trend here at FT Money. And could it be batteries? Not quite the ones that you used to put in your Walkman all those years ago, but the batteries that are powering electric cars nowadays. Our investment columnist, David Stevenson, thinks we could be on the verge of an impending electric revolution and joins us now. David, we've heard a lot about electric cars over the years, but why now, do you think? Well, the, the honest reason, I suppose, is mandated regulations. <laughs> I mean, California and some of the states in America and other parts of the world, particularly cities, are having a, a big, as we know in London, for instance, you know, people are concerned about pollution generally. So there's a mandated requirement in California for a certain percentage of sales to be all electric cars. I think we've got to be careful about getting taken in on the electric car story. Everybody know, thinks that, you know, Tesla's either going to be the next big thing or the next big crash. The point about electric is that we're on a point of a revolution in terms of the batteries. That's what really makes a difference. And those batteries will be deployed in many more places than just cars. I take no view about whether or not electric cars are the next big thing. They may well be. I personally wouldn't buy one at the moment. I think they're very expensive. And I think the char- the range of them is not sufficiently there. I think the performance is there, certainly with the Teslas. So I'm, I'm neutral on the subject of electric cars. But I think the reality of it is, is, is that the amount of renewable energy out there, which is in kind of difficult, far-fung bits of the, of the grid, where people... For instance, could put home batteries again. Tesla's in this market; they're building these these home charging stations. But they're not they're not the only ones. There's been a few in this market for a while. Uh, electric bicycles, electric everything, really. Electric public transport, actually. Well, I also it, see you're, you're wearing a smartwatch as well. Absolutely, it's powered by something. Maybe an electric battery. No, I'm point. sure it is. Yes, absolutely, not a very good one because it runs out every two three days. But <laughs> rather like the iPhone. So again, lithium-ion batteries in terms of mobile phones. Who doesn't own, a, for instance, a leading manufacturer of mobile phones whose telephones die after? about six hours. I can't possibly name who no, they would be. Of course not, no. But if I were to eat an apple, I'd be there. So, you know, we all know that there's a battery crunch and that we need to work out a way of getting better power out lithium-ion batteries. That's well, the bottom Well, line. let's look at that. So I'm an investor. I see there's yeah. a big need for batteries of yeah. all shapes and sizes. Yeah, yeah. So what should I look for? How can I get into it? Well, everybody's chased after lithium. You know, the clues in the title, lithium-ion batteries. The problem with lithium is, is that it's really only found in a couple of places in the world and already investors have found them. So Nevada's got a lot of them. So a lot of a lot of startups and a lot of interesting kind of NASDAQ and Vancouver venture businesses are in that market. 
listing price has gone up phenomenally. And the other big area that it's in is in South America. I haven't actually been to it, but there's a corner of Bolivia and Argentina and Chile where a lot of this stuff is coming out, of, particularly Chile. Again, tightly controlled, tightly owned. The Chinese are all over this. Big Chinese companies are all over this. So it's very difficult lithium. I'm not too sure that's the right way to go. So don't invest in lithium, but invest in the companies that are mining lithium or invest in the metals or what, no, what exactly I, should be I, I think the, the idea that I, I'm quite interested in is maybe look beyond the immediate. I picked up a paper that was just done by ITS Securities on this and they were looking, saying actually lithium, yep, it's an interesting area, but look at things like cobalt. Oh. Uh, and cobalt is very important in lithium-ion batteries, as is manganese and, is, to a lesser degree, nickel and copper. Copper is a big, big commodity. So there are lots of uh, factors going on behind the price of copper. And in fact, reality is that cobalt, manganese are byproducts of other mining operations, so, typically so, copper. So be clever about it in terms of how to get into it. But OK, you've looked at the various kind of options out there, yeah. lithium or cobalt or manganese or whatever it might be, whichever way in. But what sort of returns can I hope for as an investor? Very tricky. Because of that diversification point. So classically, for instance, a stock that actually I've been quite a fan of in the last year or two, but not necessarily for this reason. So Glencore. Let's, let's, let's put a name to it. Glencore, massive diversified mining organisation for 200. Um, and it's had its problems and it has its issues in terms of the way it's maybe sometimes run in terms of its very it's kind of it's a very centrally controlled organisation. Lots of people don't quite know what the moving parts are. But it has uh, massively stepped up investments in big cobalt production uh, facilities in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. It's made a big play on cobalt. It's a really big play what it's doing. And Glencore shares are not, I don't think, ridiculously overpriced for maybe for the reasons that we've mentioned. So to answer your returns question, it's quite difficult because you've got to strip out uh, what's going on with cobalt and the other minerals that go into lithium ion from the wider portfolio of production output that these good big companies are, out, are doing out there. I've maintained that from an investment point of view, I've done this as oil, if you go for producers of uh, minerals or petrochemicals or oil or gas reserves that are strategically important, these are big reserves, people want them, they're in areas that are easy to access and people really are willing to pay dot dollar for them, you'll do well. And I think Glencore is one of those. Final point, you mentioned Glencore, you mentioned copper. We've had quite a sustained commodities boom yes. over the past 12, 18 months. Have investors missed the boat, do you think? Mostly. I still think, <laughs> I still oh. think, I still think there's probably in the 12 to 18 months the cycle left. And it's partly dependent, though not as predominantly dependent as it used to be on China. And I still think the China credit easing cycle, which is apparently a lot of the market commodities, not quite as obvious as it used to, but still very importantly, has probably got 12 months to run. So get in now. And thank you very Pleasure. much to David Stevenson, whose column you can read online at ft.com forward slash money or in the weekend FT. That's all from The Money Show this week. If you've got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to post to our team of financial experts, get in touch. Email us at money at ft.com, tweet us at FT Money or comment on our articles online at ft.com forward slash money. We'll be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.